I'm Rick Dadarian, and you're listening to Realms of Memory. Remembering the partition of British India isn't just about confronting the violence and the trauma caused by the unmixing of populations. It's also about the memories of the cultural entanglements that once bound together the people from this region. Photos, music, and food are just a few of the examples of cultural forms that can remind us and connect us to people, places, and times that no longer exist but continue to resonate. Cultural reminders of a shared past have the potential to bridge the distrust, resentment, and animosity that often come from difficult and divisive national histories. Anania Kabir, a professor of literature at King's College London, has spent years using her critical skills to analyze the cultural entanglements in South Asia. Her family comes from the region of Bengal and now live in the three countries that were once part of British India. For Anania, the story of cultural entanglements is a personal one, which she discusses in her book, Partitions Post-Amnesias, 1947-1971 in Modern South Asia, which will be the subject of my conversation with her today. Anania Kabir, thanks for joining Realms of Memory. Thank you. Thank you for having me here with you. Now, I can't resist uh, just starting with a question, because you, you, you begin your, your academic career working on medieval literature, and that's really the focus of of first couple books, right? Uh, how What causes you to, to, to shift your focus to South Asia? You know, this is actually so crucial in understanding my career because while I was in the middle of my PhD, um, 1997, you know, uh, we were into 50 years of Indian independence and partition. And I remember vividly feeling, um, not torn, feeling a bit like, you know, deflected. I had this... um, obsessive focus on the European Middle Ages, which was my PhD. And suddenly there were other other histories, other commemorations, which I was getting um, glimpses of. Remember, this is 1997, so we don't have the internet working in the way it does today. But I could still sense that there was a conversation opening up about um, what had happened 50 years ago in India, to create India, as it were. And I realized that it was I realized anew how important this conversation was for my family, for um, how I was, what I was. And it started me on a journey that ultimately took me away from the European Middle Ages and towards the South Asia, which I was kind of born into, you know. And uh, I can definitely say that the 50 years of the 50th anniversary of Indian independence and partition was definitely what made me want to enter the realm of memory, which is um, South Asia today. Mm-hmm. So there's a commemorative commemorative memory trigger that inspires that that the beginnings of that, that research. Absolutely. And, and when you start to look into this field of partition studies, I mean, it is really changing dramatically in the 1990s. So that's the period where it's really opening up. I think you, you make the case, though, that there are still some significant absences, uh, uh, which which is really the focus, the, at least the area focus of of your book. So, which areas had received more attention in partition studies, and what did you how did you try to address that imbalance? 
Right. So what was happening in 1997 is that we suddenly had a critical mass of books appearing, mostly with an oral history and feminist emphasis to recover stories of um, women in particular um, that had been silenced by these nationalist narratives of independence. You know, nations coming of age through the anti-colonial struggle, India as well as Pakistan. And what had been forgotten is that certain groups of people had been caught in the midst of those processes and their their micro histories had not been told. So certain books started emerging. Uh, people like Ritu Menon, uh, Urvashi Butalia, Kamla Bhaseen, you know, these are legendary names now. They started collecting oral histories of women who were still alive at that time, you know, who had lived through that. And they started um, drawing attention to these um, to these hidden and obscured narratives. And this was part of this Memory triggered, uh, as you put it, but a kind of alternative one to the big stories of uh, 50 years of the nation that were being celebrated officially. But interestingly enough, because of the positionality of these pioneering women who were bringing these stories to the public sphere, um, these stories tended to cluster on that side of the Indian subcontinent, which we call the Punjab, you know, this area, the region of the Punjab, which was partitioned between Pakistan and India, which is on the western side of the Indian subcontinent. Those stories started coming out more and more of what happened to people caught in that particular, um, you know, um, that particular um, sort of um, set of events. And... As a person from the region known as Bengal, which is kind of on the opposite side, on the eastern side of the Indian subcontinent, I knew that there were other um, complementary interlock stories uh, which were being missed out, which hadn't yet been heard properly. Of course, there were there were there was mention of the Bengal, what had happened to Bengal in the partition. All the people talking about the Punjab, like Urvashi and Kamla and Ritu, were mentioning Bengal, but they were not going to Bengal, you know to talk about what had happened there. So I realized that there was, in this critical mass that was that was suddenly hitting us, there were also gaps inevitably. And I felt that that was where I wanted to step in. Um, and I also wanted to bring my literary critical tools, you know. I'm not a collector of oral histories, and I'm not a historian. I'm not an ethnographer. Um, I'm not a sociologist. I'm a literary critic. What does that mean, you know? What kind of angles can I bring onto the materials that I know exist there, which I want to um, plug the gaps with. But it, to me, it seems, and this is one of the things that, that struck me, if you're looking at, at uh, the work on the memory of partition, novelists are the ones who are the, really the first to, to, to tackle the subject. And historians are kind of late, uh, late to, to, to uh, take this on. Uh, so if, if, if having a training in, in, uh, uh, literary studies uh, is uh, th- where you came from. I mean, to me, it seems like they couldn't be a better a better background to take take t- into this particular field. Absolutely, and I would say that literary studies is a composite package. What it really means is that we use certain um, theoretical approaches to the study of human culture and kind of uh, retool them, you know, to look at, say, texts or films or whatever. And uh, one set of theoretical approaches that were um, open to me because I was a literary critic and I could kind of like understand those approaches were really what um, the tools that were being used 
to understand the memorial impact of the Holocaust, you know. And uh, by the 1990s, a significant body of criticism and uh, scholarly work existed, which was grappling with what it meant for, um, you know, the, the Holocaust to have happened, uh, what it meant to be survivors of, uh, you know, of, of, of the camps, of the concentration camps, uh, what it meant for people in America who had fled, you know, um, the and Europe and were now um, kind of part of um, of an intelligentsia in in the Americas um, because they had brought with them, you know, their culture, their knowledge, their their refinement and their learning. And in a way, the Jewish experience in America also started reminding me of what had happened to Indian Muslims because of the partition, you know. So the different ways in which, as a literary critic, I could access um, a lot of very um, poignant and acutely, um, you know, sharp in a way, uh, scholarship on on a European and American legacy of uh, the Second World War. And um, that was going by the kind of broad term of Holocaust studies. And um, there was a really intimate relationship building up between memory studies in general and Holocaust studies in particular. As a literary critic, I could access those materials. I could understand what tools they were using, psychoanalysis, close reading, symptomatic reading, and so on. And I could say, right, I can bring all this material and see how we can look at the after effects, the responses to the Indian partition through this toolkit. So as a literary critic, I think not only was I able to see what was out there in terms of literary responses to the partition, uh, historians were seeing that too. But I could actually, I could say, listen, I know how to analyze this stuff using a certain set of methods that we develop in departments such as in English literature departments, you know. So that was really uh, where I stepped in, in, in in the late 1990s. So one of the things that points I thought that was interesting at the start of your book is you mentioned that one of the pitfalls of of looking at partition is it's often we're often looking at it in terms of narrative sources of memories uh, and uh, and narratives have certain drawbacks when you're trying to understand the past and and you you try to take a different approach by looking at non-narrative type types of sources. Uh, could you explain what? What what are some of the drawbacks of of narrative approaches to trying to understand partition, and what what are non narrative sources that you tried to look at? Thanks for that again, um, because it really um, is an interesting continuation of the earlier question or the earlier observation you made that I'm a literary critic, and so you know um, uh, my training makes me sensitive to say. Uh, the novels out there about partition or the short stories. They're not the very fertile genre for responses to partition. And these, whether they're novels or whether they're short stories, they're taking the forms of narratives, you know. They have beginnings, middles and ends. And again, it's my training as a literary critic, the fact that we teach our students what it means to have stories, you know, what form and shape the stories must take, but also the politics that telling stories um, smuggle in through their very form, you know. All this made me understand, ironically, that 
there were narratives out there about partition and there were also certain biases or dangers or foreclosures associated with narratives. If you tell a story, that story is inevitably someone's story and it's not going to be someone else's story. Do you see what I mean? There are certain, once you once you push that button and say, start, a story can only take a certain form. You can try to break it. You can try to wrestle with the form. Salman Rushdie does a great job of that. But it's ultimately still kind of trapped between the pages of a text, which has a certain beginning, middle and end, cause and effect. Once you set that machine rolling, there's only so much you can depart from it. So I thought, interesting, I'm going to look for other ways in which partition can be responded to. Surely stories can't be the only thing out there. What happens if you sing a song about partition? You know, what happens if you paint a, a visual memory of partition? What do you do with that? How do you analyze it? And what other feelings can be transmitted, can be captured, can we detect by shifting our focus, you know, to those arguably more slippery, more difficult to um, understand um, responses. But while they may be difficult to unpack and understand, they're not difficult for us to sense. Do you know what I mean? We can feel, we can, we can have a communion of feeling. But my job as a critic is to say, well, how does that actually work? And so in my book, I was determined to shine the spotlight on some of these um, more opaque forms of commemoration, opaque because they did not yield to the protocols of storytelling, which in a way we are more attuned to, um, to following and understanding. And to me, it seems that one of the points you were trying to make too is that these you have this region that's interconnected, uh, and once you reduce it, or you reduce the stories of of the respective countries that come out of partition to to narrative form. You're just rigidifying the borders, the divisions between them. And if you're looking at these cultural artifacts that are left o- over, it it gives you a greater opportunity to understand the connections between them. Uh, you've got to look at them in a more complex way. That was my take is that I, it seemed like these non-narrative sources, cultural sources, whether it's a, a painting, whether it's a, a song, uh, uh, a, a sculpture, uh, a photo, uh, give you a better chance of trying to understand that past in a way that has a greater chance of promoting healing and reconciliation. That seems to be a high up on your agenda with, 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 with this project. It was definitely one of my arguments. And in a way, it's an argument that I had already started exploring in the book that I wrote before I wrote the partition book, which was on Kashmir, which is like an all-out conflict zone, you know, uh, in uh, in our region. And there, too, I had argued strongly for the problematics of narrative and how narratives or stories are only too easily hijacked by certain groups and made into an us versus them uh, kind of, you know, template. Whereas I argued that certain um, that mo- moving as far away from stories with endings as possible, um, we had better chances of um, activating some other circuit of feeling that could draw us together as human beings and as people with a shared 
and not just divided history. Um, so absolutely, um, I was trying and I still am trying in the work I'm doing now to constantly, uh, you know, as a, as a scholar, I am provoked and constantly, um, uh, you know, challenged by textuality because the in, con- in dialogue with non-textual forms, I can understand in a way the text even better, you know. So I'm kind of quite... I think by now, 30 years or more of reading texts, I'm pretty sure what they can do and what they don't do. Do you know what I'm saying? And that realization makes me want to look at um, interlocked um, forms of remembering. Nothing really can exist without the other. A non-texture job, like if you imagine, if you go to see a sculpture, you know, in a park, what are the chances that there's going to be no words anywhere telling you what that sculpture is? Somewhere you'll at least know what the title is and what the name of the person is. You know what I mean? Nothing can really exist without words and words cannot exist without the world outside, which is non, non-textual. However, it's that interlocking which interests me. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an interlocking that kind of transposes itself to what you have mentioned um, uh, uh, in, your, in your question, the interlocking of culture the inter you know the inter um relations between nations which share the same space and have shared the same history so in other words there are lots of entanglements and i am quite interested in kind of finding my pathway through those entanglements be the textual and non-textual be there of different nations be there of languages be there of emotions but we are i'm i'm kind of trying to yeah, disentangle those those threads. So if you're looking at uh, partition, you're really trying to understand what happened, especially if you're looking at Pakistan and uh, what becomes Pakistan and Bangladesh, you really need to look at entanglements on these two countries that are unified and uh, split into two. Uh, and uh, one of the ways that you explore this, one of these... Uh, uh, non-narrative sources of culture that you try to, to use to get at, at, the, at the complexity of this past is maps. And you talk about how maps are used by artists, maps are used by novelists, really to, to, to challenge uh, uh, maybe more simplistic ways of, of, of looking at these countries uh, and, and to dig into uh, some of the forgotten connections. Uh, between them. Um, so I was hoping to talk a little bit about how, yeah. how maps work. Because on one hand, maps seem like a, a classic tool uh, for, for, for that's, that's used to construct, construct national identities. Um, but uh, you try to take it in a different direction. Absolutely. Now, this is a very uh, fascinating uh, point you make. Pakistan and Bangladesh. Um, you know, um, in 1947, when the partition was agreed on through various machinations, you know, the corridors of power, it was a very bizarre map that emerged. Um, we had India, a nation called India, and on two sides of it, there were two wings of another nation called Pakistan. And these wings were called East Pakistan and West Pakistan. And I really found, um, you know, um, it's um, quite, quite surreal, you know, that 
such an experiment could even be sustained for the two decades and a bit that it was. Because what happened is that by 1971, this bold experiment unraveled. There was civil war in Pakistan and the East Wing uh, became um, the new country of Bangladesh. So um, uh, at the very recently, a Bangladeshi artist and writer, Naeem Mohaimen, has written a new book and he's calling it Bang, um, he's calling it Bangladesh, which is Midnight's Third Child. You see what I mean? He's riffing off Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children. So there's this sense that Pakistan and India emerged, and that was not the end of the story. <laughs> Within, uh, you know, two decades, in 1971, you had a third country emerge, which is Bangladesh. So what happened to the map? It superimposed, Bangladesh superimposed itself on the territory, the region, which was called between 1947 and 71, East Pakistan. The borders didn't really change, but the name and identity of the space was utterly transformed. And with that transformation, the geopolitics of the entire space altered because India no longer had to contend with a hostile nation, quote-unquote Pakistan, on two, it was not flanked anymore by two wings of the same nation. It now had Pakistan on one side of it and Bangladesh on the other side of it. Um, so the entanglement that we are talking about, a kind of foundational entanglement between Pakistan and Bangladesh, there's a third party in there, which is India, and we cannot kind of forget it, you know. Uh, uh, people who specialize in, in war studies or have traced exactly what happened in 1971, you know, will say that um, the, uh, the 1971 so-called, uh, you know, language is important here. The Bangladeshis would call it the liberation and independence of, uh, you know, Bangladesh. Uh, in Pakistan, it was, I think it's still called the civil war, which ended in a secession of the wing, you know, eastern wing to become Bangladesh. Whatever it is, India definitely, you know, it's known that the Indian army played a role in this, you know, um, because it was to India's geopolitical advantage to not be flanked by a hostile country on two sides of it, but have possibly a friendly country on its uh, eastern wing, um, and so on and so forth. So, you know, this is just, the again, the geopolitics and the military dimension of the matter. Emotions, families, friendships, um, institutions were horribly entangled because of this two-step process, uh, which started in 47 and, and kind of reverberated, bounced back in 1971 to reshape the entire space, which is actually not reshaped at all because the boundaries, you know, the political borders did not take new contours, but the names had changed. And uh, I was, I'm quite, and remain fascinated by what actually all this means to the people living through these spaces. And my sense is that, because you're looking at this at two levels. So you're looking at Bangladesh and Pakistan as being one country uh, and and then you're looking at these cultural actors, uh, could be an archaeologist, could be an artist, and they're trying to construct an identity. They're trying mm -hmm. to find a usable past for, yes. for these two, two areas. And they're digging into this region. It's a new country, but it's a region with lots of history. So they're trying to pick and choose and unearth the useful elements. And then when that project unravels, uh, 
there's a forgetting of 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 that of that connection uh, and it, then you're looking at later generation of cultural actors uh, whether it's a novelist or, or an artist uh, who are using these maps to remind us of this this period of time where they there there was this unified project uh, uh, and so these artists are using maps as a as a memory trigger while the nations are kind of moving on and trying to f- construct new usable past, new identities, and they're trying to forget that that period of, of, of unity. No, absolutely. And what I'm trying to do, what I try to do in the book is also show how Indian cultural actors were impacted by what was going on in Pakistan, which would ultimately lead to Bangladesh. I mean, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's a kind of... Uh, it would seem logical that people in Pakistan and Bangladesh would be involved in what happened to Pakistan and Bangladesh. You know what I'm saying? But what I show is that India and Indian um, cultural actors of different kinds were never um, unimpacted by what was happening to Pakistan during the period 1947 to 1971. And because of this, actually, I realized as I was writing the book, I'm like, oh, my God, this is a book about East Pakistan, a place that doesn't exist anymore on any map. I realized that it was formative, actually, in in um, this um, in this intricate um, balancing act between three parties, um, two parties that became three parties, and how then the uh, memory was managed between and amongst all these groups. Um, so for me, um, I understood that core at the core of my book lay this vanished space. East Pakistan, but but it was not vanished. It had vanished from the map to be renamed Bangladesh, but it had remained in people's minds and memories as an active space of formation and um, a newness that had impacted everyone uh, in South Asia after 1947. And after 1971, it continued, its afterlives continued in these kind of cultural and creative maps that you're talking about. So also it seems that these cultural sources, so whether you're trying to delve into this, you're trying to delve into this period uh, where uh, Pakistan and, and Bangladesh were unified, uh, uh, you, you have maps as a memory trigger, but also you have uh, uh, movies and novels that uh, serve as a means of, of kind of digging into what that actually meant, the separation, what happened. Uh, uh, the violence, uh, the, the 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 ways in which people's lives were affected, uh, um, the reasons why that project didn't work out, uh, uh, and uh, my sense is that that this critical approach to that past, you don't get that through the, the national story that that Pakistan and Bangladesh want to forget and move on, construct their new histories. So if you're trying to understand, well, how can these non-narrative cultural sources help promote healing and reconciliation? In part, you might argue, well, they offer a more critical take on on that history. I would say that it's not just, in fact, um, a critical take that often these uh, creative responses or memorializations of um, the East Pakistan period uh, offer. Actually, um, they offer um, 
a more I wouldn't even say nostalgic. I would say they actually allow the expression of feelings that are almost deemed um, um, contraband, you know. You can't feel certain things if you're a citizen of a certain nation. You cannot feel affection. You cannot feel a connection for a past that had to be um, be left behind for um, for for leftovers that still persist spatially and uh, in other ways on other sides of borders. These connections, I think the um, creative uh, responses to difficult pasts are important, not just because they're critical, but because they are also, they can embrace other possibilities and options um, and show them as meaningful you know, emotionally and intellectually uh, still meaningful. And that's the healing power. You see what I mean? A critical work can be done by the intellect, but the work of healing must actually be done by the emotion, emotional dimension of our existences. And that's what, um, that's what some, that's what a, a person who, creatively response to the past does and my task as a literary critic is to illuminate or point to those alternatives you know and say this is what they're trying to say this is what they're trying to express and those are the lessons that we can all learn from so to give you an example it's always good to talk from examples I have opened my book with the voice and words of a very important singer, Firoza Begum. Firoza Begum was like the voice of Bangladesh. You know, she was a she was a beautiful um, singer of Bengali, um, you know, uh, Bengali um, music, um, poetry by by particularly uh, the um, uh, writer. Um, known as, uh, his name was Nazrul Islam. Nazrul Islam also was a very interesting figure, who was Bengali, um, you know, kind of divided, if you like, between Indian Bengal and Bangladesh. Um, and Firoza Begum gave voice to many of his compositions. And um, what I quote from her in the beginning of my book is an interview where she remembers a confused period of her life in the around 1947 when her family, like many um, Indian Muslim families, were wondering whether are they going to go to Pakistan? Are they going to remain in what was become India? Um, and, you know, this kind of... Um, this kind of disorientation because no decision was clear or easy is what she remembers. And then she says, I became sick. You know, I almost stopped singing because of all this. By this time, she was already an established radio artist. So, uh, you know, she had a career and she was well known and she found that she had no, she couldn't, um, she was almost like, you know, uh, her creativity w was was almost blocked because of what was happening. This is a common story. Again, this happened to a number of people. Um, and then, you know, I pointed out um, in my analysis that um, she um, is someone whose music um, was broadcast through the Pakistan, you know, radio uh, stations. And she was an artist who was recording uh, for East Pakistan, there was a period in her life where she's not able to really remember. She's remembering the movement between India and what became Bangladesh, but actually she was moving between India and Pakistan. And as a Bangladeshi singer, where she, which is what she ended up as, she does not perhaps find it comfortable to go back to the period of East Pakistan, but her voice 
was broadcast and recorded during that era and people in Pakistan remember that she sang there and she herself also sang Urdu songs which is a language which she was forced to distance herself from when she became an artist of Bangladesh. So these sorts of leftovers, these um, affective contours which complicate the black and white picture of partition, I think that's the kind of nuance that comes through in her song. You know, it's not coming through in her narrative of what happened to her. But when you listen to her with that knowledge, you think, ah, um, she's actually um, unable to perhaps express openly um, a formative period of her life, which happened in Pakistan. But what happens if we try to remind people of that? Would that be a way forward in making people of Pakistan, Bangladesh, and even India think differently about what is still shared, you know? So East Pakistan and its memory becomes a space of reconciliation rather than a space of separation and, um, you know, um, a space um, of bitterness because there was a lot of people were, people, there was a genocide. People call it a genocide of Bengalis by Pakistanis. Uh, Pakistanis again turn to India and say that you um, aided and abetted Pakistan, Bangladesh in becoming, you know, in seceding. So all sorts of ill feelings swirl around the space, but they're also memories of shared, um, you know, intimacies. And that's the kind of um, sharing that I am interested in excavating and bringing back in front of us. So would you put these uh, earlier... Uh really like first generation cultural actors and you feature an archaeologist and you yes. feature uh, 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 this artist and, and their kind of common project to build a shared national identity uh, after 1947 for Pakistan and Bangladesh. Uh, I mean, are, do you see this as a, it's a broader uh, project of, 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 uh, an effort to try to find a, a united form of culture. Um, well, what I did in that chapter, so there's a chapter in my book where I talk about, as you as you point out, the role of archaeology in trying to solve some problems of the past. Okay, so what are these problems? The fact is that in 1947 shifting the focus away from India to what's going on in Pakistan, you see that you have this nation, as I've said, which has assumes a very difficult shape, that of two physically disparate, disjoint wings, so to speak, you know. And the body in between these wings is India, hostile territory, thousands of miles of it. You can't really, you don't even have a land route between East and West Pakistan. You have to fly. You, oh, you can take a very long boat ride, you know, all along the coast of India. I mean, it's an impossible situation, right? Um, how is it going to be sustained? Um, we, you know, we know about Benedict Anderson's famous um, uh, and very useful concept of imagined communities, right? So how do you imagine a community that's literally split into these two geographically disparate and linguistically, um, culturally very different um, zones? Um what certain intellectuals did, and that's what I show in this chapter, um, is that they go back to the very idea of soil itself, you know. Um, and they go back to the idea of terracotta, which is baked earth, as we know. It's a medium used to create sculptures. And um, they go back to 
terracotta as a medium to think about connectivity between these completely um, uh, disjunct spaces. And interestingly enough, they also go to um, a culture that precedes these conflicts between Hinduism and Islam on the subcontinent, which have precipitated the partition you know, of the space, and that is Buddhism. So I show how an archaeologist like Professor Dani, who was one of the founding figures of um, uh, Pakistan's, um, Pakistan's kind of, um, you know, um, Pakistan's invention of its past, really. Um, Professor Dani um, delved into the, you know, the, the kind of mysteries, shall we say, of um, Buddhist archaeological remains, which were like profusely scattered in the parts of Pakistan that border on Central Asia and Afghanistan and so on. And he went and he did his excavations there and he talked about, he used that material in a way to try and find a usable past for Pakistan, you know, but one that would actually bring and unite its eastern and western wings because Bangladesh, the part that became Bangladesh, East Pakistan, also had Buddhist remnants. So terracotta um, and Buddhism kind of link together to give certain people in that early phase of nation building of Pakistan via media, a a way to think of a cohesive national narrative that could perhaps suture these disparate wings. What happened, though, is that that was a failed project. But often failures are also important to tell us about utopias and unrealized dreams. It failed because of, um, as one knows very well, I mean, there was um, a, a you know, um, there were a lot of uh, sociocultural disparities in Pakistan and there was um, a hegemony, uh, cultural hegemony over uh, the Bengali-speaking part uh, of Pakistan, which was obviously focused in East Bengal, East Pakistan. And, the, the you know, the, the cultural project of trying to look at terracotta <laughs> to create a unifying narrative, a unifying history, uh, it was, it could, it was, um, shall we say, it could not bear the weight of actual politics on the ground of, of, of you know, um, politics of inequality and of um, uh, linguistic and uh, cultural uh, a kind of form of apartheid almost that was happening in, in, in Pakistan against the Bengali language and its culture. So um, that... Uh, when, therefore, um, 1971 happened, despite the efforts of people like Professor Dani, what was very interesting is that that narrative of terracotta and Buddhism kind of went underground. And that's what I showed, you know, um, through tracking Dani's career and the stances he took after 1971, because he was still alive and he was still a professor and he was still, you know, forming the, uh, you know, participating in the intellectual work and life of Pakistan after 1971. And the story changed, you know. This is why I'm distrustful of stories. You see what I mean? However, nobody can remove the terracotta. Nobody can say Buddhist artifacts don't exist in Pakistan. If you go to Lahore Museum, you will still see Gandhara art. So in other words, the stories may change and shift, but the materials remain, you know, the materials of memory remain to remind us. So there are these um, terracotta yeah. elements of uh, you're, when you're looking at this period from 1947 to 71, there are these 
uh, experts uh, who are trying to find these common cultural elements they see in terracotta that carry over from from Pakistan into the region of what becomes Bangladesh. And then you get to 1971 and there's uh, this split. Uh, and mm-hmm. how, do, how do Pakistan and Bangladesh move off in very different directions in, in constructing their yeah, understanding exactly. of their national past? So, so what happens is that um, um, in Pakistan, you know, um, as we know, again, there's a, there's a to simplify uh, complexities, but I think it's fair enough to say that a process of Islamicization um, starts taking precedence, you know, um, regional differences or regional, um, regional reflexes in, in culture and language and so on. It's not that people stop speaking, say, for example, Sindhi or, you know, they stop singing Punjabi uh, Kawalis or whatever, but there is a sense in which the um, national um, the national story is one of an Islamic, modern Islamic nation, which means Islamicization, you know, and um, and people like Dani are actually changing the tune and they are they are agreeing with this or they are lending their voice to this new uh, understanding of what Pakistan means. Um, and in Bangladesh, you know, um, that burden of terracotta, if you like, uh, passes into a wholehearted, um, uh, wholehearted, um, what can we say, uh, valorization of a folkloric element. You know, um, in Bangladesh after 1971, what would be seen within the um, uh, kind of long uh, vision, long jure vision of South Asian history as the uh, culture of the little folk, you know, the culture of the of, of, of marginalized groups, um, like which emblematizes itself in small terracotta toys, you know, for example, which could be sold at folk bazaars and little village markets. Those become important. They take on the burden. We are a a nation which valorizes our little things, our small terracotta toys. And um, Zainul Abedin, very famous painter from Bangladesh, I mean, he was from East Pakistan. He was Dani's contemporary. I show their interrelations in in my chapter Zainul Abedin now becomes um, uh, one of the key intellectual figures uh, in the new Bangladesh. And he actually creates a museum of terracotta toys. You know, I find this very, um, very significant um, and, a, and, and, and a good illustration of how terracotta takes on another life in, um, in, in Bangladesh. But terracotta has a life in India, too. And that's what my chapter is interested in. Sandwiched in between what's going on with terracotta in these two wings of Pakistan there is an Indian story of terracotta and it's in kind of concert, you know, it's being uh, inflected by what's happening around it in Pakistan's East and West wings. And then ultimately Pakistan and Bangladesh. Now you, you, you do mention some of the monuments I was hoping you might discuss a little bit, especially in Bangladesh. I thought it was fascinating, this concept of the sealed moment and the way in which Ah, these monuments are constructed. Could you comment on that a little? Now, um, Very quickly, what happened in Bangladesh is that the achievement of um, a country of one's own, shall we say, uh, for the Bengalis um, who were finding themselves subjugated um, in the arrangements of Pakistan. Um, This idea that we've finally arrived, you know, what Mohammed says calls this... um, um, Midnight's third child, you know, the sense that we are now here, 
we are a nation finally in our own right, 1971. This moment becomes of extreme importance again um, in, in, in shaping uh, 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 that imagined community, which is now going to be Bangladesh, you know. And what I've, um, what I've pointed out is that um, this emphasis on 1971 uh, almost um, predicates a de-emphasis on 1947. Nations don't like messy beginnings, you know what I mean? Uh, um, no, no nation will have a story which says we were complicated it was all very con- confusing you know nobody knew who was coming in that's not that's not uh, helpful in creating clean and uh, easily mobilized nationalist narratives and in bangladesh uh, that was done by almost chipping away everything that happened before 1971 and presenting 1971 as the moment of emergence for the nation you know and that's what i call the sealed moment you have to seal off the memory of what was before that not between 1947 and 71 the period of participation in the project of pakistan the same elites and the same people who had wanted to be pakistani were now saying we want to be we don't want to be pakistani but of course you know this means that uh, they they were they mistaken in 1947 This is a very complicated ontology for a nation, you know. Did you make a mistake that ultimately led to a good thing? Do two wrongs make a right, you know? Should we simply forget what happened before? And this particular um, two-step process in coming into uh, being as a nation, 1947 followed by 1971, I think um, is um, distilled into an unwavering and almost unquestionable emphasis on the importance of 1971 as the moment of the nation's emergence in um, in Bangladesh and for Bangladesh. And that's what I call the sealed moment. And I have seen that phenomenologically, if you like, uh, manifested in certain monuments to Bangladesh's um moment you know of emergence in 1971 you've got bangladesh um if you go to dhaka you see very many monuments to um 1971 this is interesting um and a bit different from the memorialization of 1947 in india and this uh, and these monuments um you know uh for me represent a kind of uh, assertion of the sealed moment but also uh because they are monuments made by um uh, creative and sensitive artists who are not into propaganda they also leave open um certain uh possibilities for reminding you that it was a messy moment that should be prized open not just sealed you see what i'm saying the moment is presented as both one that's sealed but therefore can be unsealed mm-hmm. okay and i think you also point out that one of the roles that the cultural actors you study take on is is criticizing these new national memories and you, you have a really great example with uh, a particular uh, pakistani visual artist who who's very critical of this new shift towards rooting the country in islamic past I think you're referring to my discussion of Bani Abidi? Yes. Yes, I mean she's an amazing artist and you know she's uh, I mean 
10 years ago, I, 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 I wrote about her. She's, uh, she's very, you know, she's extremely well established and she, she has, um, uh, you know, she has produced even more and more stuff, um, in the years since. Uh, I have, in fact, written on her recent work two years ago, um, where, um, there was a big exhibition of all her work in Berlin and I was in Berlin at that time. And, uh, what I noted through this, uh, small examination of one of her images, a, a, an almost ironic image of, uh, uh, you know, uh, a man, a young man trying to be a soldier of Islam. I think that was the, you know, on a, on a kind of Camel, you know, she's very ironic, and she she does um, she's done quite a lot of this sort of work in which she um, ironically both presents and undercuts this um, the the insistence that the nation uh, of Pakistan um, was uh, was created on an Islamicist you know uh, understanding. Um, I think um, thinking of nation um, of Pakistan as an Islamic nation uh, really, I think, um, obscures again the currents of a utopian modernity that um, created it um, and uh, which have been kind of swept under the carpet or will to be forgotten because of 1971 and the new emphases that had to uh, be furnished, you know, to explain to to. To, to the national collective psyche, what had happened to, to kind of rationalize it and move on. Um, so the work of people like Bani Abidi, I think, is very important. Also, Kamila Shamsi, um, uh, a novelist uh, whom I've written about in my chapter on maps, uh, because she is indeed interested in maps and, uh, you know, mapping East Pakistan onto the, um, onto the again, memory and psyche of contemporary Pakistanis. Um, so, so there are quite a few people. What is interesting to me is, these are people who are kind of my generation, you know, we're all kind of in our 50s now, I suppose. Um, and uh, therefore, there is, a, I'm also drawing some generational links, you know, there are, uh, there are generations of who remember and generations who forget and generations who want to remember again. And uh, we, um, myself, and many of the people I bring together in my book are of this kind of third generation since 1947. It doesn't matter whether you're Pakistani, Bengali, uh, you know, Indian or whatever, Bangladeshi. You, we are of that third generation from that moment of 1947. And so we can recognize and pick up on this post-amnesiac, you know, desire that I am defining in my book. Well, that's your point, too, is that uh, this third generation, often people in the diaspora, they have connections uh, through uh, through uh, social media uh the internet that didn't exist before that allowed them to transcend uh, national boundaries and boundaries and barriers and uh, and maybe they're more emotionally detached, you might argue, from that past that uh, might give them uh, more of a possibility to. Uh, to I dialogue. don't know about detachment. You know, detachment is such a difficult word. We may not be attached. We never had any physical attachment. Critical distance. <laughs> critical more critical distance. distance from I don't know. I think sometimes, you know, if only that were the case, then I think uh, there would be no identity wars or battles. Don't you think? I, I, I don't. I don't really feel um, that um, the logic of um, uh, temporal and spatial distance really works with emotions when it comes to. Um, attachment 
to I'm coming off of uh, reading a book on memory activism in Germany and the, uh-huh. one of the, the the differences was the later generations of memory actors uh, who weren't personally implicated in in, in yes. the Nazi past uh, versus uh, the newer generation of memory actors who came out of East Germany for them it was much more of a lived direct emotional experience and how they approach the past in very different ways because of that. Um, I think that's a great example, you know, because what you see with East and West Germany or what was former East and former West Germany is a kind of um, temporal um, disjunction, you know, a dis- there's a disjuncture because of uh, Cold War politics, you know, uh, certain structures of memory uh, were allowed in the East, which were not allowed in the West and vice versa, you see. And now in the present, when all these groups are drawn together in the same space, which is Germany, unified, um, but they come with different trajectories, don't they, of memory, um, remembering and forgetting, and also feeling of implication um, and, um, you know, connection with a very difficult past. So that's a very good example about, um, that's a very good um, parallel, I think, useful parallel to understand how things work in South Asia, because with this idea of um, Midnight's third child, you already see the sense that there was the first and the second and then the third. So, you know, there are different layers there of implication, of entanglement and connection. But I think it's fair to say that, of course, wherever you are, you find yourself, um, whichever country you find yourself close, closely connected, closest, connected to the closest, shall we say, because of citizenship or because of citizenship of your parents or whatever, I think um, there is definitely a, a temporal distance from the generation that lived through 1947, right? And that is something that is both... Um, that's a trigger, I think, for a, a fresh wave of memory work. When you think, but those people, you know, we don't have any tangible connection with the past anymore. Um, our grandparents have all passed on, you know. Um, and yet we are still feeling the urge to go back to that moment. We still want to work out and figure out what it, ha- what, what it means for us. So I don't think, I think there's both things happening. Um, the te- temporal distance and of very often spatial dislocation definitely create certain conditions for um, memorial, uh, for memory work, which are different conditions to say that of an anterior generation. But it doesn't make that me- the urge for memory work go away or doesn't make that urge less um, acute, you know? Okay. It, my sense is from the very start of your book where you begin with uh... – and if it wasn't for my fear of copyright infringement, I would have started with the Dean Martin song. Yes, yes. Uh, Mambo Italiano, which I, I yes. enjoyed discovering and listening to. Uh, and my sense is whether you're listening to the song or you're looking at uh, family pictures as you're really trying to understand uh, the emotional connection uh, of, of the generations before you. Um, that it's a it's a almost like a you're looking at this generation later uh, and uh, trying to understand connections that uh, maybe no longer exist uh, attachments to 
places that uh, have changed. Uh, and uh, so maybe that's what I meant more by a mm-hmm. critical distance. Um, um, the point is this, that somehow mysteriously, maybe even, what, what seems to be in common is that our attachments actually don't uh, decrease um, they come coupled perhaps with curiosity because we don't have lived experience of certain spaces anymore, but that doesn't make us less curious. And this, I think, is a feature definitely of South Asian uh, post-amnesia that I'm trying to talk about. You know, um, Wherever we are, we always think about what were my grandparents doing, you know, and what kind of lives did they have? And we feel that we cannot access it, not just because that was a different moment in the past, but because that's now in another country. So the past is literally another country, you know. And what I find is uh, quite interesting for me, I decided that I would start with the story of my family because it is a family that, like countless other families for whom the past is in another country or in several different countries, we have devised our own protocols, our own rituals of trying to keep that attachment integral and intact, you know, through um, through um, memory triggers of different kinds, attachment triggers of different kinds. And for me, it was easy to speak from the uh, perspective, of course, of my own family, which, like the East Pakistan that I spoke about, um, has uh, a spectral and ghostly center in a house that existed in East Pakistan. And now that still stands in Bangladesh. But like East Pakistan, it stands, but is no longer what it used to be. It used to be our family home, but now it's a school and college for women, you know, um, in Bangladesh. And um, yet nobody can forget this home in my family. People still keep talking about it. People circulate photos of it. Uh, People have stories about it. And a culture uh, developed amongst the siblings and their children who were um, born of the people who were born in that house. And that culture is still, again, activated through memories like that song, which I started with. And I deliberately started with that song because it's a song by Dean Martin. It's a song in English. And I wanted to show that to be from a Muslim family that was partitioned in different ways through 1947 and 71, it's not about lamenting the loss overtly of a Muslimness or whatever, you know, of a religiosity. It's about things that make your family, you know what I mean? About songs, about food, about the way you you you, you hung out together, uh, people, your cousins that you met and you can't meet anymore. Um, and um, it was important to, sh- to somehow short circuit a set of expectations people might have of what happened to Muslim people during the partition by saying, well, people uh, found that uh, they missed singing uh, a Dean Martin song with their cousins and they still did it nevertheless whenever they could <laughs> and they still sing it together through social media, you know. So it's it's kind of queering the pitch a little bit. It's trying to say that there's a story of modernity here that is equally important for me to piece together uh, through what happened because of partition. Anania Kabir is professor of English literature at King's College London. She is the author of Partitions Post-Amnesias, 1947-1971 and Modern South Asia. Anania, thanks so much for joining me today on Realms of Memory. 
it was really important to talk about these things which are so precious and important to us. Thank you, Rick. Next month, we'll turn to Serbia and the memory of the wars in Yugoslavia. We'll talk with Professor Orly Friedman from Singadunum University in Belgrade about a recent book, Memory Activism and Digital Practices After Conflict, Unwanted Memories. Word of mouth is often the way we discover things we like and appreciate. If you've enjoyed this or other episodes of Realms of Memory, please share a link. Thanks again for listening. I'm Rick Dadarian. See you soon.